week I had a simple outline was confusion and clarity, two major themes of this passage of Scripture. The enemies of Jesus, the opponents, are providing lots of confusion. They like confusion. Uh, obfuscation. Obfuscation of the opponents. I like that word, obfuscate. It means to hide the truth, to make it as confusing as possible, to never answer the question. It's like some politicians. Lars said right, rightfully we shouldn't <laughs> open scenes in on criticizing politicians, but some politicians, when you ask them a direct question, you ever notice this? Ask them a direct question, they never answer the question. They obfuscate. Uh, they come around, skate, skate around the circle. The opponents of Jesus have been giving lots of misinformation and lots of uh, false information about Jesus and accusations and gossip and all sorts of things. And, 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 but in chapter 7, reread it yourself. Um, Jesus is this huge contrast to this confusion. He comes through with clarity, with wonderful, bold, wonderful truth. And these points of clarity are excellent to meditate on. Um, I've starred them in my text, and these, this is just a sample, but this is primarily the ones I'm thinking about. Uh, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 17, a point of clarity. If anyone's will is to do God's will, this is what Jesus said, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Then look at verse 24, beautiful point of clarity. Jesus literally challenges us to think carefully. Jesus is inviting us to have proper, critical thinking. Okay? Don't just swallow this thing hook, line, and sinker. Uh, be careful. This is what he says. Do not judge by appearances. Don't just go by outward appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's a point of clarity. Jesus says, you've got to think carefully. You've got to compare these things. You have to study the scripture yourself to know whether these things are true or false. He, there's nothing in true biblical Christianity that says, don't think, you know, check your brain at the door, pick up your crayons, and come on in. No, that's not Jesus. 724, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And then I have another bright spot, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed... I like that because he doesn't mutter, he doesn't hem and haw, he speaks clearly in the midst of their, their and the text says they're muttering, see verse 32 for example, I think it's twice in this text, the, the crowd is muttering, and then Jesus, hear this, you know, nice and clear. So verse 28 is another one, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from? But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. He's saying, my authority is from God. What I speak is from God the Father. He sent me. And if you deny what I'm saying, you're denying what God the Father said. And then today we're going to look exclusively at verse 37, 38, 39, a bright point of clarity uh, in the midst of all this muddy water. We have clear, pure, healthy 
water from Jesus. On the last day of the feast, this is happening during this big commotion of the, the high point of the year, the Feast of Booths, uh, very similar to Passover, a different time of year, but I mean just big crowds in Jerusalem. It was a feast of obligation. In other words, if you were a male, a Jew, you were supposed to go. Uh, you, that was expected. So big masses of crowds in Jerusalem, and he uses that as a stage to proclaim these great truths. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus, had not, Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Father, please help us in these remaining minutes together to focus in on what you want us to hear from this word. Would you take us to the feet of Jesus and help us to hear him crying out clearly in the midst of all the confusion, crying out clearly this gospel truth that he is the source of satisfaction. Lord, would you please make us thirsty for Jesus this morning together. And may we turn to him in faith and, and know him and receive him and trust him more, I pray, uh, that we would be trusting you through all of life and all that it brings to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So my three words for today are clarity, confidence, and communication. Clarity, confidence, and communication. Let's get into this. I have a lot to cover, so if I talk fast, it's because there's a lot of wonderful information here. And generally, I like to get you out in roughly uh, half an hour from now. So we'll see how that goes. First of all, Jesus proclaims with clarity. I've already made this point pretty clear. <laughs> I like this point, obviously, because it... Jesus is strong. He's not ashamed. He speaks clearly and wonderfully. And a point to consider on this is that it is worth the risk. This is extremely risky for Jesus. First of all, to be in Jerusalem at all, and then to wait for the precise moment of heightened excitement and attention and to stand, I presume he's standing up on something. He says he stood up. And the word cried out, it means exactly what it sounds like in English. He spoke really loudly. There's no microphone. In a way, that seems wonderful to me because every time we turn on a mic, we have some kind of problem with the microphone. You know? <laughs> but uh, Jesus... He, I'm not overemphasizing here. He's speaking to thousands of people, standing loudly, speaking loudly so that they can hear amidst all the confusion and muttering and, 
and misinformation, he wants to make this really clear. He's, on the great day, he stood up and cried out, and it's worth the risk. It's very risky for him to do this. It's well known that people were seeking to kill him. Everybody knew this. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Everybody knew the Jewish authorities were trying to kill Jesus. So what's the best way to avoid that? Stand up in the middle of their temple and start preaching loudly? No, that's not the best way to do it. It's better to sort of like run off into the desert and sit under a tree or something and keep your mouth shut. We watched uh, the Luther film on our Reformation party and his father is pretty upset about all the trouble Luther's making. And at one point, uh, his father gives him a hug. This is all dramatized. We don't know exactly what happened, but his father gives him a hug and says to to Martin Luther, keep your big mouth shut. (laughs) Luther, of course, didn't uh, follow that little piece of advice. And neither did Jesus. Uh, His father would never tell him to do that. It's worth the risk. You and I live in an environment where this issue is is becoming more and more relevant to our lives. The, the risk of being clear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the risk of being clear about what the Bible teaches about just about anything. Um, I, uh, I found this on uh, Facebook, so you know it's good, right? No. But, <laughs> but I actually checked it out, and it's a legitimate, <laughs> legitimate quote. This is from an academic uh, named Rosemary Durward. She's at King's College, London, and she's in defense studies, interestingly enough. And this is what she said. The religious fundamentalists, when seeking to impose religious beliefs on others, is undertaking an implicit, an implicit act of violence. Okay, so I totally destroyed that. Let me read it again. <laughs> No, I didn't totally, but partially. The religious fundamentalist, when seeking to impose religious beliefs on others, is undertaking an implicit act of violence. All right. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, and I want to do a little uh, analysis of this statement. Is Jesus this religious fundamentalist when he stands up in the temple and says these bold words, if, if you're thirsty, let him come to me and drink whoever believes in me. First of all, is he trying to impose religious beliefs on others? Yeah, you'd have to say he is. He wants to persuade them in the realm of spirituality, in the realm of religiousness, he wants them to, pers- to believe something new, right? To believe that he is the savior and to not cave in to all the muttering and miscommunication that's going on, but to just boldly believe that Jesus really is the savior in body and blood. He's God's provision for us to have salvation. But on the other hand, I would argue with her language. The religious fundamentalist when seeking to impose religious beliefs on others is undertaking an implicit act of violence. Because um, 
I would argue with that language. I'm not actually trying to impose a religious belief on you as if I could coerce you or force you to believe this, maybe at the point of a sword, for example. We're not trying to do that, and Jesus is not trying to do that in any way, shape, or form. He's persuading, and he's inviting. He's not backing off. He's saying, this is the truth. You must believe it. But to say that he's imposing religious beliefs on people is probably not a good way to characterize what Jesus is saying. Is undertaking an implicit act of violence. Okay, I don't like her language there. I say it's bold, yes, and it is courageous, um, and it is suggesting that somebody needs to change their ways and what they believe, but to call that violence is overstating the case. We don't advocate violence in our mode of evangelism. Let's, we don't have to look far for examples of people that do, right? We know that this horrendous thing is happening right now as I speak in Syria and in Iraq. Uh, people are imposing, but they're doing more than imposing religious beliefs. They're not coming and saying, hey, we really want you to believe this. <laughs> No, are they? No, they're saying, you believe this or we will kill you. Uh, we be you believe this or we will, we will do not conceptual violence, but real, true violence, as we know that is happening in the Middle East. So she's ball balling up too many things into one place. And uh, in some ways, I disagree with her, and in some ways, I agree with her. But this shows you the kind of territory we need to navigate. Because the academics, the influential ones, are saying it is inherently, implicitly violent for you to tell me that Jesus Christ is the Savior. You know, a few weeks ago, I read a quote. Somebody gave it to me. I, I read it from a source, a good source saying that the most, the most violent thing a, a pediatrician can do in the delivery room is to say, congratulations, you have a boy, or congratulations, you have a girl, because that's sexism. That's imposing. Uh, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's, what they're, that's the thinking out there of this extreme um, statement that saying, no, uh, there's no differentiation and it is wrong for you to say that Jesus is the way of salvation. Uh, that is not tolerant and it is not open. So Jesus is taking the risk. It's worth the risk to stand up and clearly say, this is the truth. Why? Why is it worth the risk? Because people who don't believe it lose. They lose out on life. They lose out on this great forgiveness that we can have. We're, we'll open that up in a little bit uh, later, too. But it's worth the risk, and it is the Father's will. Jesus is here to do the Father's will, isn't he? He has a higher calling. He's not here to even survive. In fact, quite frankly, he's here to die. 
Uh, and over the years, over the centuries, so many Christians have followed that example. I'm not here to survive this situation. I'm here to do the Father's will. And if that means that I become a martyr, God give me strength to stand secure. It is the Father's will. It's a higher calling to stand for the truth in the midst of, of difficult, intense opposition. And here, I, I like this too, as I've already said, the method and mass, message match. Too many M's there, but the method and message match. He's being bold, but this is a bold message. It needs to be proclaimed to anyone who, who, who will hear. I want to say something that is important for you to hear. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not that comfortable. I'm not the sandwich board preacher, you know, that wanders around a city preaching, but I think I was in Boston uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I mean, I know I was in Boston a few weeks ago, but <laughs> it was one, we ran into one of those street preachers just, just walking along with a big sign of some sort. I don't know if he was holding it or if he was wearing it. I can't remember. Uh, and he was just preaching as he goes. And, and everything I heard him say was from the Bible. It was actually true. You know, and I'm not saying you and I should do that necessarily, but there's something to proclaiming, isn't there? There's something to being willing to take that risk one, in one of the biggest uh, values of American culture is privacy, and you don't tell me what to do, don't invade, don't, don't push your stuff on me, right? And we're, we're violating all of those cultural norms. We're going against all those things when we say, Jesus is the Savior. You need to believe in him. You need to trust in him. He is the Savior. So that leads me to this confidence word. Clarity and confidence. We can have confidence in Jesus. This is what this is all about. If you're into theology, uh, we call this the Christocentric nature of the Bible. The Bible, and particularly John's gospel, is all about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, what he's capable of now. And, and look at the strong words in this little passage of Scripture. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I have the capacity to meet your needs. Whatever your needs are, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Chapter 6, we won't get into it, but let me a passing swing of the arm reference to it. Over and over and over, he, he says, I am the living bread. You come to me and you eat me and you drink my blood. You take my body. What's he saying? You participate in me. This is the definition of faith in the Gospel of John. I, I can't emphasize it enough. At the very end of chapter 2, I'd like you students of John along with me. Um, let me do something real quick here the end of chapter 2, but let's, let's look at chapter 20, again, verse 30 and 31. It says now, this is chapter 20, 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, he is the Savior. He is the provision. And by believing in him, receiving him, trusting in him, you may have life in his name. John wrote his book for that purpose. At the end of the book, he says, this was the thesis of my book. Now look at 2, chapter 2, the very end of it. Very important. He's going to define for us what does he mean by believe. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Now, if we were literally interpreting, rather, uh, translating this, that word entrust there would be the word believe. Believe. It's the same word. But because it would be so awkward in English, they translate it to entrust. Literally what he's saying here, verse 23, many people believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is this saying? When Jesus says at the feast in chapter 7, come to me, believe in me, he says, come to me and drink. He's not saying, yeah, we just sort of at some point in our life we say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and um, I want whatever he has to offer. <laughs> you know, sure, give me a free meal. Give me a ticket to heaven. Sounds great. That's not the belief that Jesus is interested in. He's interested in a, a deep, profound commitment. It's more like the word devotion. It's more like the word love. I've used this illustration a lot, but I like it. Husbands and wives should love each other, right? I'm, I'm blessed with a fantastic wife. 35 years of marriage, and I love Charlotte, and she loves me. Crazy. <laughs> but, you know, I say I love Charlotte, but what if I just disappeared for like four or five months and never wrote her? It's like, what? What are you doing? You, well, I love you. Well, what do you want? I told you I love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Nate, what, 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 about, what about being here? What about loving me? What about committing? What about helping? What about being a part of my life? We wouldn't accept it, would we? We'd say, that's not love. You're living off by yourself, doing your own thing. You're not a part of my life. See, that's the difference. Jesus is saying, you become a part of me. We are together. I become a part of your life, your day in, day out, commitment, real life. That's what it takes. We have confidence in him. We trust in him. Put it this way. Jesus changes everything. He has this huge power, innate, implicit, <laughs> inherent power in the being of this God-man. That's our, our Savior, Jesus. That's why we worship him. We trust his capabilities. He changes everything. He is the Savior. You know, dear friends, that's such a basic idea, but it's like a lot of Christendom have forgot that. We, we name cities El Salvador. 
That's a whole state, isn't it? Nation. <laughs> I, I can't think when I stand up here unless I write it down. So. <laughs> San Salvador, the, the Holy Savior. And yet, and yet Christianity, Christendom, a large swatch of it is telling people that they earn their salvation. They have to work for it. They have to do this and that and this and that. And maybe God will be kind enough to save you if you have measured up to his, his little list of things you're supposed to measure up to. Well, why does that sound exactly like Islam? Because it is exactly like Islam. It's, it's, it's exactly like any kind of faith that doesn't tell you what it means when we say Jesus is the Savior. <laughs> He's the one who saves us. He says, come to me. Come to me. See verse 38, whoever believes in me. Don't believe in yourself. The gospel never says believe in yourself. Okay. Disney said that. Walt Disney said that over and over and over again. But that, that's, a, that's a dead end road. What the gospel says is believe in Jesus. Trust in him completely. He is the Savior. He is fully capable of meeting our needs. That is the gospel. Now, we're going to open that up just a little bit by looking at this. We are called to communicate God's provision to all. Those are my three C's, clarity, confidence, and communicate. We are called to communicate God's provision to all. This is the verse I'm thinking about. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers. Not, not just one river. And, and the Greek word is out of his belly. Just out, out, of, out of who he is the center of his being, there's going to be rivers flowing. You know, if you read the, the I think it's the second chapter of Genesis, it talks about the Garden of Eden. There's four rivers that flow in and out of the Garden of, Re of Eden. What is that about? It's about provision. It's about abundant provision, supply of what we need for life itself. And Jesus is telling us that we become a source, he becomes the source of life in and through us, and rivers flow out of us, rivers of living water. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And so subsequent to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, when he's glorified, the whole church, every believer, receives the Spirit. So let's look at this a little bit here uh, as we work toward closing in about 10 minutes. We're, we're called to communicate God's provision to all. We're called to the, believe the clarity, have confidence in Jesus, and then know it well enough to communicate it. We're supposed to be a source of help and hope and healing and clear water, living water, to all of those around us. This fulfills Scripture. Now, this is kind of a little bit uh, weird because you'd think, well, there must be some specific verse that Jesus has in mind. But there isn't really a specific verse that Jesus has in mind. He's, he's referring to this general idea that there's, it's found in several places in the Old Testament. I, I think it's deep. Um, I like the psalm. I forgot the number of it. But it says, you, you give us drink from the river of your delights. 
I love that language there. Uh, God wants to provide for us. Like I said, I think it's even in the Garden of Eden. There's four rivers, glorious, wonderful rivers. Rivers are supply and life and uh, provision, all that we need. And here, let's look at, uh, this is Isaiah 12.3. You might just want to write it down. Isaiah 12.3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Uh, Jesus said that he provides this well for us. We're going to open this up a little bit. Uh, bear with me. Look at Psalm, excuse me. Look at Ezekiel. A um, couple of commentaries tied this in with Ezekiel 47. And I don't want to spend a long time on it because it's uh, pretty intense and pretty interesting. I just want to throw it out very briefly. Uh, Ezekiel 47 is almost toward the end of this great book. And it provides this picture about the future, and and I'm the kind of guy that I believe that there's uh, some kind of a literal fulfillment of this yet to come in the future, uh, because the Bible is often so literal, and there's so many specific descriptions of the future in this uh, Ezekiel 47 passage and following all around it. But it talks about this future temple. And, and listen to what it says here. Then, this is verse 1, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And he goes on and on and on, long passage describing this weird thing, because the water starts out as kind of a trickle and gets wider and wider and wider, bigger, and it provides uh, for all those around it. It provides for the nations. Uh, all, all people come and get what they need out, out of this river. See verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will, flow, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Again, I think there's probably some actual future literal fulfillment of this, right? But as I said, a couple of commentaries said, hey, this reminds me of Ezekiel 47, that we are, aren't we the temple of the Holy Spirit? And out of this temple flows this water of life that provides what people need. And it it gives them food and nourishment and help and healing. And everybody can come to this water. It's way bigger than us. It flows out of us. And this is what I mean by communication. God wants us to be able to communicate and help people all around us. This fulfills Scripture. He wants you to be a source of life. This is the work of the Spirit. Now, again, I have a really brief, I want to go on this really briefly because it's so important. We're going to look at this a lot in John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit. But I want to explain this in uh, chapter 7. It says, now this he said about the Spirit. Basically, sum it up in a very small nutshell. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit uh, comes into your life, and he actually 
causes you to be saved. He regenerates you, and that's illustrated by you, you believe, you trust in Jesus Christ, you come to him, and you have a new connection with God. And here are some verses on this. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. He produces this living water. John 1.33, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And that's this wonderful religious language of saying we're dunked and poured upon and uh, he throws us into the Holy Spirit. We're connected with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And here's Acts 1, 5. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's a reference to Pentecost. And then here's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Listen to this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. See, the, the means of our salvation is this spiritual event. When we come to Jesus in faith, we're baptized into the Holy Spirit. We're baptized into Christ. And we have the spirit. Here's Romans 8, 9, for example. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Romans 8, 9. That's saying if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not a believer. You're, you're not a Christian. Uh, you can't be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit in you. That's a part of how you become a Christian, you see. You become a Christian by being baptized by God uh, into the Spirit, with the Spirit, he regenerates you and you become a follower of Jesus. Here's John 3, 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't, cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. Yeah, the Holy Spirit gives us life and then transforms us so that we become a source of life. We become a pure water well of living water. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This tells us how do we get this? How do we know this? Through the words of Holy Scripture through the words of Jesus Christ. Here's 1 Peter. I know I'm going fast, but I want you to, maybe you're jotting down these references. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Jesus baptizes us into the Holy Spirit. He baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And then we're born of the Spirit. And now, finally, the Spirit dwells in us. He lives in us as believers. Here's John 14. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, 
because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, as a believer, we have the Holy Spirit within us. Verse 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here's 1526 in John. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is a part of that flowing up. He bears witness. He teaches us. He reminds us of God's precious truth in the Word of God. And here's John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus says, this well of water is the Holy Spirit within us, that he indwells us. This is the work of the Spirit. Give it a second, it's going to change here. Right about now? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a new slide there. <laughs> Anytime slide. You want to hit the next slide, please? There. Oh, there we go. He makes us a source of living water. And I want to close on this really quickly, this idea of living water. There's just, just a few references. I don't, I don't want to beat you up with references. Here's just three more on that, okay? I promise. Uh, living water. There's this glorious idea of living water in this text. And in John, early on in chapter 4, he was talking to the woman at the well, you may recall. It's a great passage. Read it again. But John 4.10 says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now here's John 4.13 in the same context. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. See, this relationship with God is to be satisfying. And the more we're satisfied with God, the more we bring him glory, the more we enjoy him and relax in him and have confidence in him based on knowing him through Holy Scripture and abiding in the word, living in him. He satisfies us completely. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And then one last reference here. This is from Jeremiah. Listen to this one about why it is important for us to communicate this glorious truth that human beings can have life through Jesus. Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, the hope of Israel, O Lord, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. See, if you forsake Jesus, the provision of his sacrifice for your sins, you will be put to shame. When you get to be before God's judgment seat, you're going to say, but, but I've been good. Please measure my good works. I'm good enough. And that will lead to your shame because your good works never outweigh your sins because the wages of sin is death. The sentence is a capital crime, you know, spiritually speaking, forever. 
You can't outweigh that by taking good care of dogs. Now, you know, I like dogs. I'm not opposed to dogs. But, you know, we have this idea that if we just, we're just good people, certainly God will be good to us. No, it doesn't outweigh your sin. If you turn your back on Jesus, you will be put to shame. Hear me out. It's true. This is what the Word of God says. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Avoid that. Through Jesus, those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. That's what living water is. That's what we provide uh, for people. All people need this. All people need this. This is why we do missions. Let me close with this application. Who needs water? Let me ask you this question right off. Are you thirsty? I was meditating on this scripture a lot. It's kind of driving around with the radio on. It suddenly hit me. I reached down and turned off the radio and said, I'm thirsty. I want Jesus. I want to hear him say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. That's what I hear. I want to come to Jesus. Meet my needs, Lord Jesus, with your immense capacity and eternal worth. Meet my needs. Are you thirsty? Here's the answer. He will provide your needs. Secondly, oh, help it along here. I don't know where we're hobbling along here. There, oh, there it, it finally decided. <laughs> Start a clean water project. Okay? Uh, uh, our church actually supports uh, building wells in Africa. Every month we send a little money uh, toward people who are building wells in Africa. It's a very good idea. You know, I'm not opposed to it at all. But here is a text that says you and I are supposed to be clean sources of living water all the time. And we have to start this clean water project because people are drinking polluted water. And I'm speaking metaphorically, you understand. We have to know the purity of the word of God and be a source of this clean water that they need so desperately. Are you thirsty? Start a clean water project. Who needs water? Your family needs water. You're a source. I, you know, I don't think Jesus or, or the Apostle Paul or St. Peter, I don't think they're going to knock on your family's door today. They probably won't. Okay? But you might. You might pick up your phone and call them, right? You're called to be a witness of this beautiful, clean water. Friends and coworkers, why has God placed you where you are? Why has he given you your job? Is it so that you can do your job well? Yes, and you bring him glory by doing your job really well. Absolutely. But you're also this splashing water system going on. <laughs> Living water that wells up to eternal life. You, you have something more wonderful than a really good salary. Or, or maybe a mediocre salary. You know, Whatever you have, you have something way better to offer people. Start a clean water project, and, and I said, finally, the, the nations. That's why we do missions. This is why, you know, again, I draw your attention to that quadrant of the room back there, is we have, we have China, India, and Indonesia. That's first population, second population, fourth population of, 
of the world. I mean, that's a huge amount of people, right? And we have, you know, we're giving like 13 cents or, you know, multiples of 13 cents. We're giving a little bit of money. It's very little, but we should be concerned about them. Pray for them. Uh, reach out to the nations. They need this clean water of Jesus. This is how we should be raising our children, affecting our culture, growing our church, and being involved with missions. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity to look at this clear, clear, beautiful, healthy word of Jesus. And may it ring in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.